everybody out there in podcast land. This is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture in the Season 2 NREMT EMT Lecture Prep Series. Today, we are going to be talking about bleeding, which is Lecture 2 of the Trauma Block. But before that, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which can be found by searching for the EMT Tutor. There you can find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. Alright, on to your learning. After this podcast, the EMT student should understand the structures and function of the circulatory system, the significance and characteristics of bleeding, the importance of personal protective equipment when treating a bleeding patient, the characteristics of external and internal bleeding, and how to conduct a patient assessment and the methodologies for controlling bleeding. As with all of our other lectures, we're going to identify the knowledge domains for this lecture. Remember, knowledge domains is the information you should know and understand to successfully pass a block exam or the national registry exam in regards to this subject matter. Okay, knowledge domains. The EMT student should be able to describe the general structure of the circulatory system and the functions of its different parts, including the heart, arteries, veins, and capillaries. You should be able to explain the significance of bleeding caused by blunt force trauma, including the importance of perfusion. Additionally, you should be able to discuss hypovolemic shock as a result of bleeding, including the signs and symptoms of shock. You should be able to explain the importance of following standard precautions when treating a patient with external bleeding and be able to describe the characteristics of external bleeding, including the identification of the following types of bleeding, arterial, venous, and capillary. The EMT student should be able to explain how to determine the nature of the illness for internal bleeding, including identifying possible traumatic and non-traumatic sources. The EMT student should be able to identify the signs and symptoms of internal bleeding, and discuss internal bleeding in terms of the different mechanisms of injury and the associated internal bleeding sources. You should be able to explain how to conduct a primary assessment, including identification of life threats beyond bleeding, ensuring a patent airway, and making a transport decision. You should be able to explain how to assess a patient with external or internal bleeding, including physical examination, vital signs, and the use of monitoring devices. You should also be able to explain the emergency medical care of the patient with external bleeding and last, explain the emergency medical care of the patient with internal bleeding. I know that sounds like a lot, but when we get done with this lecture, it should all make sense. After managing the airway, recognizing bleeding and understanding how it affects the body are two of the most important skills you will learn as an EMT. Bleeding can be external and obvious, or internal and hidden. Either type of bleeding is potentially dangerous and can cause weakness, shock, and death. Uncontrolled bleeding is the most common cause of shock following a traumatic injury. Okay, we're gonna be breaking this down into sections. 
This first section is anatomy and physiology of the cardiovascular system. The cardiovascular system circulates blood to all of the body's cells and tissues. It delivers oxygen and nutrients and carries away metabolic waste products. It's also responsible for supplying and maintaining adequate blood flow. The components of the circulatory system are the following. One, the heart, otherwise known as the pump. Number two, blood vessels, otherwise known as the container. And three, blood and bodily fluids, otherwise known as fluid. And it's just a simpler way of knowing that the circulatory system is a pump, a container, and fluid kind of like a car engine. The engine is the pump, the pipes and so forth are the container, the blood vessels, and the gasoline is the fluid. All right, let's first talk about the heart. The heart needs a rich and well-distributed blood supply. It works as two paired pumps. The upper chambers are known as the atriums, and the lower chambers are known as the ventricles. Blood leaves each chamber through a one-way valve which keeps the blood moving in the proper direction. Now as far as the blood vessels and blood, there are different types of blood vessels and those are arteries, arterioles, capillaries, venules, and veins. Now arteries carry blood away from the heart. They become smaller the farther they are from the heart. As blood flows out of the heart, it passes into the aorta, which is the largest artery in the body. Now, arterioles, spelled A-R-T-E-R-I-O-L-E-S. These are smaller vessels that connect the arteries and capillaries. And then speaking of capillaries, these are the smallest vessels in the body and they pass among all the cells of the body and link arterioles and venules together. Now, venules, spelled V-E-N-U-L-E-S, these are very small, thin-walled vessels that empty into veins. And then veins carry blood from the tissues to the heart. Now, oxygen and nutrients easily pass from the capillaries into the cells and waste and carbon dioxide diffuse from the cells into the capillaries. One more time. Oxygen and nutrients easily pass from the capillaries into the cells and waste as well as carbon dioxide diffuse from the cells into the capillaries. This transportation system allows the body to rid itself of waste products. In talking about blood, we're going to talk about the components of blood. Blood contains, first, red blood cells, and these are responsible for the transportation of oxygen to the cells and for transporting carbon dioxide away from the cells to the lungs. One more time, red blood cells. They are responsible for the transportation of oxygen to the cells and for transporting carbon dioxide away from the cells to the lungs. The other components of blood are white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. Now, white blood cells, they're responsible for fighting infection. 
platelets, they're responsible for forming blood clots. And last, plasma is the fluid portion of the blood. So if you see a test question which asks you what are the components of the blood, there's four components. And once again, they are red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. Before we move on to the pathophysiology and perfusion of this lecture, let's talk a little bit about blood clotting. Blood clot formation depends on several factors. First is the blood stasis. Next is the changes in the blood vessel walls, such as a wound. Last is blood's ability or the blood's ability to clot. This can be affected by disease or medications. Now when tissues are injured, platelets begin to collect at the site of injury. Red blood cells become sticky and clump together. Protein in plasma reinforces the developing clot. So this is how a normal body will treat itself when it senses a wound. Now going back to one of the things we just talked about, there are medications which will thin someone's blood. Normally these are cardiac medications prescribed to a patient after suffering from a heart attack. So they have to reduce the workload plus they want to reduce the possibility of any further clots getting larger. And then the disease process. Well, there are diseases which inhibit someone from forming clots, such as hemophilia. Okay, the last thing we're going to talk about in regards to the anatomy and physiology of the cardiovascular system is the autotomic nervous system. The autotomic nervous system monitors the body's needs from moment to moment. It adjusts blood flow by constricting or dilating blood vessels. It automatically redirects blood away from other organs to the heart, brain, lungs, and kidneys in an emergency. It adapts to changing conditions in the body to maintain homeostasis and perfusion. If the system fails to provide sufficient circulation for every body part to perform its function, shock results. This is one of the main things that an EMT will try to prevent and or treat on all of their patients. All right, we're now going to move into the pathophysiology and perfusion. Perfusion is the circulation of blood within an organ or tissue in adequate amounts to meet the cell's current needs for oxygen, nutrients, and waste removal. The best way to describe this is perfusion is just your body receiving the proper amount of oxygen as well as food and then because it produces energy, the removal of that waste. This is what perfusion is. And of course, there are various different reasons why perfusion can fail. Let's talk about one of the factors that affects perfusion, and that would be the speed of blood flow. Blood flow must be fast enough to maintain adequate circulation throughout the body and to avoid clotting, but it must be slow enough to allow cells time to exchange oxygen and nutrients for carbon dioxide and other waste products. 
Some tissues need a constant supply of blood, while others can survive with very little flow. So you can see that this is just a well, or I should say your body is just a well-balanced machine. Blood flow can't be too fast, but it can't be too slow. So these are some of the reasons that we have to know this information because what if our patient is tachycardic? Or what if our patient is bradycardic? You have to know what is happening internally in regards to that perfusion. All organs and organ systems of the human body depend on adequate perfusion to function properly. Some organs cannot tolerate interruptions of blood supply for even a few minutes without sustaining damage. Death of an organ system can quickly lead to death of the patient. Emergency medical care is designed to support adequate perfusion until the patient arrives at the hospital. The heart requires a constant supply of blood. The brain and spinal cord may last four to six minutes without perfusion. The lungs can survive only 15 to 20 minutes without perfusion. Kidneys may survive about 45 minutes and skeletal muscles may last two to three hours. The gastrointestinal tract can tolerate slightly longer periods. Now times are based on a normal body temperature, which is about 98.6 Fahrenheit or 37 Celsius. Colder temperatures will lengthen survival times. And I think we've all heard those stories of someone being submerged underneath freezing water for two hours and being revived. So we have to remember that. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about external bleeding now. In your EMT travels, you're going to hear the word hemorrhage. Hemorrhage means bleeding. Now, external bleeding is a visible hemorrhage. Examples would be a nosebleed or some type of bleeding from an open wound. The significance of external bleeding is that with serious external bleeding, it may be difficult to tell the amount of blood loss. Blood will look different on different surfaces. For example, it could be absorbed in clothing where it doesn't look as much or it could be diluted in water because your patient is lying in a puddle of water. It is important to estimate the amount of external blood loss. Treatment should be based on the patient's presentation and mechanism of injury. The body will not tolerate an acute blood loss of greater than 20% of the blood volume. This is about two pints in the average adult. Typical adult male has approximately seven milliliters of blood per kilogram of body weight. Typical adult females have approximately 65 milliliters of blood per kilogram of body weight. And as a rough estimate, remember a kilogram is roughly 2.2 pounds. So that's the best way. I always tell people to just divide their weight. So if you weigh 160, you would be 80 kilograms. And this is the formula that we would utilize when giving medications to our patients. Adverse changes in vital signs may occur with significant blood loss. There can be increase in heart rate, an increase in respiratory rate, and a decrease in blood pressure. Because infants and children have less blood volume to begin with, 
the same effect is seen with smaller amounts of blood loss. Now I tell my students the first compensatory mechanism for blood loss is tachycardia. Compensatory mechanism is a mechanism that your body uses to compensate. Compensatory mechanism. In other words, a mechanism that helps the body to compensate. In blood loss, that is tachycardia. How well people compensate for blood loss is related to how rapidly they bleed. An adult can comfortably donate one unit, about 500 milliliters, of blood over a period of 15 to 20 minutes. If a similar blood loss occurs in a much shorter period of time, the person may rapidly develop symptoms of hypovolemic shock. The age and pre-existing health of the patient should be considered. Blood loss is an extremely serious problem that demands immediate attention even before airway and breathing are addressed. This is a hint for test taking. Even though we always tell you airway, airway, airway first, if you ever have a situational test question that talks about uncontrolled bleeding, you need to treat the uncontrolled bleeding first. This would be the correct answer in your test at school as well as national registry. Okay, we're now going to talk about the characteristics of external bleeding. Injuries and some illnesses can disrupt blood vessels and cause bleeding. You should consider bleeding to be serious if the following conditions are present. First, poor general appearance and no response to external stimuli. Two, signs and symptoms of shock, hypoperfusion. Three, significant blood loss. 4. Rapid blood loss, 5. Uncontrolled bleeding, and 6. The significant mechanism of injury. Now there are three types of bleeding. We have arterial bleeding, venous bleeding, and capillary bleeding. Now arterial bleeding. Pressure causes blood to spurt and makes bleeding difficult to control. The blood is typically a brighter red which is rich in oxygen and spurts in time with the pulse. It decreases as the amount of blood circulating in the body drops and blood pressure drops. So this is that amputated body part that you see in movies and then blood comes squirting out. That would be arterial bleeding. Now venous bleeding. Venous bleeding normally is dark red because it's low in oxygen. It flows slowly or rapidly depending on the size of the vein that has basically been injured. It does not spurt and is easy to manage normally with direct pressure. It can be profuse and life-threatening. Venous bleeding is more likely to clot spontaneously than arterial bleeding. Capillary bleeding can be best described as oozing. Capillary bleeding is from damaged capillary vessels. They are dark red, and once again, they ooze from a wound steadily but slowly and are usually indicative of an abrasion injury. They're more likely to clot spontaneously than arterial bleeding. Okay, before we move on to clotting, let's do a recap of the three types of bleeding, which are arterial, venous, and capillary. 
And the reason why I put them in that order is that Arterial is the worst of the three, followed by Venus and then Capillary. All right, Arterial Bleeding. It's oxygen rich. It could be rapid and profuse, spurting with the heartbeat and most difficult to control. Venous bleeding is rich in carbon dioxide and waste. It has a steady flow, easier to control, and it's part of a low pressure system. Now capillary bleeding is slow and oozing, easily controlled, and stops spontaneously. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we've been going strong now for about 20 minutes. And if you are new to this podcast, I like to give you guys a break every 20 minutes just so you can stretch and refresh the brain. Okay, let's go ahead and take that break now. Okay, the clotting process. Bleeding tends to stop rather quickly within about 10 minutes in response to internal mechanisms and exposure to air. When the skin is broken, blood flows rapidly from the open vessel. The cut ends of the vessel begin to narrow vasoconstriction, reducing the amount of bleeding. Next, a clot forms, plugging the hole and sealing the injured portions of the blood vessel. This is coagulation. Bleeding will never stop if a clot does not form. Unless the injured vessel is completely cut off from the main blood supply by direct pressure or a tourniquet. Despite the efficiency of the circuitory system, it may fail in certain situations. They include one, movement, two, disease, three, medications, four, removal of bandages, five, external environment, six, body temperature, and last, seven, severe injury. Okay, before we start talking about internal bleeding, let's talk a little bit about hemophilia. Hemophilia is when the patient lacks one or more of the blood's clotting factors. Now, there are several forms of this. Most are hereditary. Some are severe. Unfortunately, in hemophiliac patients, bleeding may occur spontaneously. All injuries, no matter how trivial, are potentially serious and life-threatening. Patients with hemophilia should be transported immediately. We're going to be moving on now to internal bleeding. Internal bleeding is any bleeding in a cavity or space inside the body. Internal bleeding can be very serious because it is not easy to detect immediately. Injury or damage to internal organs commonly results in extensive internal bleeding. And this type of bleeding can cause hypovolemic shock. Possible conditions causing internal bleeding include 1. Stomach ulcers 2. A lacerated liver 3 a ruptured spleen, four, broken bones, especially ribs or the femur, and last, a pelvic fracture. Often, the only signs of internal bleeding are a contusion or ecchymosis. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the mechanism of injury for internal bleeding. A high energy MOI should increase your index of suspicion for the possibility of serious unseen injuries. 
Internal bleeding is possible whenever the MOI suggests that severe forces affected the body. And this could include both blunt and penetrating trauma. You should be using the mnemonic DCAP BTLS to assess for signs of injury. Once again, let's go over that mnemonic for review. DCAP BTLS. D stands for deformities. C for contusions. A for abrasions. P for punctures slash penetrations. B for burns. T for tenderness. L for lacerations. And S for swelling. Well, now that we've gone over DCAP BTLS again, let's talk about the nature of illness for internal bleeding. Now, internal bleeding is not always caused by trauma. There are possible non-traumatic causes, which include bleeding ulcers, bleeding from the colon, ruptured atopic pregnancy, and aneurysms. These are the frequent signs of internal bleeding, but note, they're not always present. This could include abdominal tenderness, guarding, rigidity, pain, and distension. In older patients, signs could include dizziness, faintness, and weakness. Now, ulcers or other gastrointestinal problems may cause vomiting or blood or bloody diarrhea or bloody urine. It is not as important for you to know the specific organ involved as it is for you to recognize that the patient is in shock and you need to respond appropriately. Signs and symptoms of internal bleeding include one, pain, which is the most common, two, swelling in the area of bleeding, three, distension, four, bleeding into the chest cavity or lung may cause dyspnea, tachycardia, and hypotension, as well as hemoptysis which is a bright red blood that is coughed up. There can be a hematoma, which is a mass of blood in the soft tissue between the skin, and last, bruising, which is defined as a contusion or ecchymosis. Now, this may not be present initially, so this is why reassessment of your patients is very vital. Let's talk about bleeding from any body opening. Okay, this could include bright red bleeding from either the mouth or rectum, hematuria, which is blood in the urine, or non-menstrual vaginal bleeding. This will be the type of bleeding that you will see from those body openings. Okay, let's switch gears now and talk about hemoemesis, which is the vomiting of blood. Dependent on how long the patient has been bleeding internally will depend on the blood that you will see. It could present as either bright red or dark red blood. You may possibly see what we call coffee grounds inside of the vomit, which means that the blood has been inside of the stomach, essentially being digested. Now let's say that the blood has made its way past the stomach into the intestinal cavity. Well, now we have a condition called melanin. This is a black, foul-smelling, tarry stool with digested blood. But what if your patient doesn't present with any type of bleeding that you can see? What happens if that bleeding is internal? Well, this is when our assessment plays a vital role. Your patient could possibly present with pain, tenderness, bruising, guarding, or swelling. 
and this could be indicative of a possible closed fracture. So this is why palpation is very important. Other suspected signs and symptoms of internal bleeding could be broken ribs, bruises over the lower part of the chest, or a rigid distended abdomen, which may be indicative of a lacerated spleen or liver. Okay, we are going to switch gears now and talk about hypoperfusion, aka shock, aka hypovolemic shock. All right. Now, you may see in your patients a change in their mental status, such as anxiety, restlessness, or combativeness. They can also appear to have weakness, faintness, or dizziness when standing. You will see changes in their skin color as they become pale or pallor. Now, the later signs of hypoperfusion, which would suggest internal bleeding, include tachycardia, weakness, fainting, or dizziness at rest, thirst, nausea and vomiting, cold, moist, clammy skin, shallow respirations, dull eyes, slightly dilated pupils that are slow to respond to light, capillary refill of more than two seconds in infants and children, weak, rapid, thready pulse, decreasing blood pressure, and an altered level of consciousness. Patients with these signs and symptoms require prompt treatment and transport. We are now moving on to patient assessment for external and internal bleeding. And our first category is scene size up. As with all of your calls, scene safety is first. Be alert to potential hazards. At vehicle crashes, ensure the absence of leaking fuel and energize electrical lines. In violent incidents, make sure the police are on scene and follow your standard precautions. At this point, you should be trying to determine the MOI or the NOI and consider the need for spinal immobilization and additional resources. Last, consider environmental factors such as weather. All right, now we're gonna move into the category of primary assessment. First, do not be distracted from identifying life threats. Form a general impression. Note important indicators that alert you to the seriousness of the patient's condition. Be aware of obvious signs of injury and distress, such as the patient's facial grimace. Determine the patient's gender and age. Next, perform a rapid assessment. Look for live threats and treat them as you find them. If the patient has obvious life-threatening external bleeding, address this first. Then assess the skin color. Determine the level of consciousness using the AVPU scale. Once again, AVPU stands for A, alert, V, verbal, P, painful stimuli, and U for unconsciousness. As you move into the ABCs portion of your assessment, consider the need for a spinal immobilization. Ensure the patient has an adequate airway and look for adequate signs of breathing. Check for breath sounds. Provide high flow oxygen or assist ventilations with a BVM or non-rebreather mask dependent on your patient's condition. If need be, insert an OP airway to secure the airway if the patient is unconscious. 
As far as circulation, assess the pulse rate and quality. Determine skin condition, color, and temperature. Check cap refill time. Control external bleeding and treat for shock, which includes apply oxygen, improve circulation, and maintain a normal body temperature. Once again, the treatment for shock is apply oxygen, improve circulation, and maintain a normal body temperature. Once this has all been completed, you now need to make a transport decision. Assessment of ABCs and live threats will determine the transport priority. Patients who may have significant bleeding will qualify. Patients who have significant bleeding will quickly become unstable. Signs that imply the need for rapid transport include tachycardia, tachypnea, low blood pressure, weak pulse, and clammy skin. This is it for your patient assessment. Now let's move on to history taking. Investigate the chief complaint. Once again, investigate the chief complaint. Look for signs or symptoms of other injuries due to the MOI or the NOI. Note obvious signs of internal bleeding. Look more carefully in this step. In a responsive trauma patient who has an isolated injury with a limited MOI, consider a focus assessment before assessing vital signs and obtaining a history. One more time. In the responsive trauma patient who has an isolated injury with a limited MOI, consider a focused assessment before assessing vital signs and obtaining a history. Assess the entire patient looking for the source of the problem, pre-existing illnesses, and other issues. Utilizing sample, ask the patient about blood thinning medications. If the patient is unresponsive, obtain history information from medical alert tags, bystanders, or family members, and look for signs and symptoms of shock. If you can, determine how much blood has been lost. Moving on to the secondary assessment. Now in the secondary assessment, you're going to record vital signs. You're going to complete a focus assessment of pain and attach appropriate monitoring devices. With a critically injured patient or a short transport time, there may not be enough time to conduct a secondary assessment. Assess all areas for DCAP BTLS. Now in the head, Look for uncontrolled bleeding from large scalp lacerations. In the abdomen, feel all four quadrants for tenderness or rigidity. And in the extremities, record pulse, motor, and sensory functions. As far as vital signs are concerned, assess baseline vital signs to observe the changes that may occur during treatment. A systolic blood pressure of less than 100 with a weak rapid pulse should suggest the presence of hypoperfusion. Cold, moist skin that is pale or gray is an important sign. In geriatric patients and patients who take certain blood pressure medications, the pulse rate may not increase with early shock. Try to determine the patient's baseline blood pressure. Quickly obtain a medical history and a list of their medications. Okay, let's finish this assessment stuff up and talk about the reassessment. Reassess the patient frequently, especially in the areas that showed abnormal findings during the primary assessment. Signs and symptoms of internal bleeding are often slow to present. 
children will compensate well for blood loss and then crash quickly. Reassess an unstable patient every five minutes and a stable patient every 15 minutes. Your interventions for these patients should include providing high flow oxygen, control external bleeding, provide treatment for shock if applicable, and transport rapidly. If internal bleeding is suspected, apply high flow O2 via a non-rebreather mask and provide rapid transport. Do not delay transport of a patient to complete an assessment. I can't drive this point home any more than just that. All right, emergency medical care for external bleeding. First, follow standard precautions. Wear gloves, eye protection, and possibly a mask or gown. Make sure that the patient has an open airway and is breathing adequately. Provide high flow oxygen. If obvious, life-threatening bleeding that is present should be controlled quickly and immediately if possible. There are several methods to control external bleeding, which include direct, even pressure, pressure dressings and or splints, and finally, tourniquets. Let's talk about direct pressure. Direct pressure is the most effective way to control external bleeding. Pressure stops the flow of blood and permits normal coagulation to occur. Apply pressure with your gloved fingertip or hand over the top of a sterile dressing. For an object protruding from the wound, apply bulky dressing to stabilize the object in place and apply pressure as best you can. Never remove an impale object from a wound unless it is in the cheek and blocking the patient's airway. Hold uninterrupted pressure for at least five minutes. And that is it with direct pressure. All right, let's now talk about pressure dressings. Now, firmly wrap a sterile self-adhering roller bandage around the entire wound. Use four x four sterile gauze pads for small wounds and sterile universal dressings for larger wounds. Cover the entire dressing above and below the wound. Stretch the bandage tight enough to control bleeding. You should still be able to palpate a distal pulse on the injured extremity after applying the dressing. Do not remove a dressing until a physician has evaluated the patient. Apply additional manual pressure through the dressing. If necessary, add more dressing over the first. Bleeding will almost always stop when the pressure of the dressing exceeds arterial pressure. It's kind of just a general rule of thumb. Dependent on where you work or dependent on your assignment, you may have access to hemostatic agents. And you may be asking yourself, well, what are those? A hemostatic agent is any chemical compound that slows or stops bleeding by assisting with clot formation. There are two forms. There are granular powder, and this can be inserted into small wounds to create a tight seal, or there are gauze impregnated with a clay substance. Now these can be used together with direct pressure when direct pressure alone is ineffective. The use of hemostatic agents in EMS remains largely experimental. Be aware of and follow your local protocols. And that's why I said, depending on what you are doing or where you're at will depend if you have access to these. Now, if you're a tactical emergency medic, then you will have access to hemostatic agents. Do you know what time it is, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, 
it is your break time. We've been going strong for 20 minutes on this segment, 40 minutes in total. So let's go ahead and take that break and finish up this lecture. Welcome back. So let's just say we can't control bleeding with direct pressure, pressure bandages, or hemostatic agents. Well, our last choice is the tourniquet. The tourniquet is useful if a patient has sustained bleeding from an extremity injury. There are several different types of commercial tourniquets that are available. You need to follow the specific manufacturer's instructions when utilizing these tourniquets. Once again, depending on your local protocols and programs, you may learn about making your own tourniquet if a commercial tourniquet is not available. For the sake of national registry, I'm going to go ahead and talk about those steps that you could be possibly learning in your program. And we make these tourniquets utilizing a triangular bandage and a stick or rod. So let's talk about this. Fold a triangular bandage until it is four inches wide and six to eight layers thick. Wrap the bandage around the extremity twice. Place the bandage high and tight proximal to the injury. Tie one knot in the bandage, then place a stick or rod on top of the knot and tie the ends of the bandage over the stick in a square knot. Use a stick or rod as a handle and twist it to tighten the tourniquet until the bleeding has stopped. Secure the stick in place and make the wrapping neat and smooth. As a last resort, you could use a blood pressure cuff as a tourniquet. And I could tell you this, I've used a blood pressure cuff several times when commercial tourniquets were not available. Whenever you apply a tourniquet, make sure you observe the following precautions. Do not apply a tourniquet directly over any joint. Always place the tourniquet proximal to the injury. Make sure the tourniquet is tightened securely. Never use wire rope, a belt, or any other narrow material because it could cut into the skin. Place padding under the tourniquet if possible to protect the tissues and help with arterial compression. Never cover a tourniquet with a bandage. Do not loosen the tourniquet after you have applied it. Mark the exact time the tourniquet was applied and be sure to communicate the time and site of application and the rationale of application clearly and specifically to hospital personnel. This is one of the most important things regarding the use of tourniquets. Okay, we're now gonna talk about splints. And splints are one of those things that are regionalized, depending on who you work for and where you work, will depend on the type of splints that are available to you. So let's first talk about air splints. These are also known as soft splints or pressure splints. They can control internal or external bleeding associated with severe extremity injuries. They obviously immobilize fractures and they can act like a pressure dressing when applied to an entire extremity rather than a small local area. Use only approved, clean, or disposable valve stems when orally inflating air splints. I can tell you, even after being in EMS for 30 years, I have never utilized an air splint because they were not available in my region. All right, let's now talk about the splint I did use, which is the rigid splint. Now, these will help with immobilizing fractures. 
and they help by reducing pain and preventing further damage to soft tissue. Once the splint is applied, monitor pulse and motor and sensory function in the distal extremity. This is actually one of your skills in National Registry is to monitor CMS before applying a splint and monitoring CMS after applying a splint. Now, what if we have bleeding from the nose, ears, and mouth? Well, we're gonna talk about that. Bleeding around the face presents a risk for airway obstruction or aspiration. Several conditions can result in bleeding from the nose, ears, and or mouth, including the following. A skull fracture, facial injuries, including those caused by a direct blow to the nose, sinusitis, infections, use and abuse of nose drops, dried or cracked nasal mucosa, or other abnormalities, high blood pressure, coagulation disorders, and digital trauma. And you may ask yourself, is that nose picking? Yes, it is. I'll challenge you to do this. Next time you're stuck in traffic on the freeway, look left and look right to see how many people pick their nose. Yes, nose picking is the number one reason for nose bleeds. Can't make this stuff up, right? Let's now talk about the specific treatment for nosebleeds, otherwise known as the epistaxis. Now, an epistaxis is a common emergency. Occasionally can cause enough blood loss to lead to shock. The blood you see may be only a small part of the total blood loss. Much of the blood may pass down the throat into the stomach as the patient swallows. A person who swallows a large amount of blood may become nauseated and start vomiting. This could be a point of confusion with internal bleeding. Most non-traumatic nosebleeds occur from sites in the septum, and this is the tissue dividing the nostrils. You can usually handle this type of bleeding effectively by pinching the nostrils together. And once again, this is a skill that you should be learning in your particular program. Now, what if you have bleeding from the nose or ears following a head injury? Well, this sign may be indicative of a skull fracture. Additionally, it may be very difficult to control. Do not attempt to stop blood flow. Applying excessive pressure to the injury may force the blood leaking through the ear or nose to collect within the head. This could increase the pressure on the brain and possibly cause permanent damage. If you suspect a skull fracture, loosely cover the bleeding site with a sterile gauze pad to collect the blood and help keep contaminants away from the site. Apply light compression by wrapping the dressing loosely around the head. If you see blood coming out of your patient's ears, what you should do is take a 4x4 and gently press it on the patient's ear to collect some of that blood. Now pull that back and if you see a yellow ring around that drop of blood, this is cerebral spinal fluid. At this point, you definitely have a skull fracture. So this is just a test to see if you have CSF fluid in the blood. We're going to finish this lecture by talking about the emergency medical care for internal bleeding. Controlling internal bleeding or bleeding from major organs usually requires surgery or other hospital procedures. Keep the patient calm, reassured, and as still and quiet as possible. Provide high flow oxygen.
maintain body temperature, splint the injured extremity, usually with an air splint if available, never use a tourniquet to control the bleeding from closed internal and or soft tissue injuries, and that is it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it with this lecture. Remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as members-exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And I can tell you this, I just uploaded the fourth practice final exam for preparation for the NREMT National Registry Test, as well as final exams that you would find in your particular program. And last, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and just search for at the EMT Tutor to get up-to-date information regarding this podcast and the resources available. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Happy EMT and good luck.